Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Welcome to Profiling Evil Podcasts. I'm Mike King, and today I'm talking with Rick Allen Ross. Rick is the founder and the executive director of the Colt Education Institute. He's an internationally known expert regarding destructive cults and controversial groups. And he's the author of the book, Cult Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out. Rick, welcome to Profiling Evil. Hi, Mike. Nice to be on with you. Well, this is this is really uh, great. I, I'm so grateful that you would come on. You've been looking into and studying cults since 1982 by everything that I've been able to research. And, and I wondered, first and foremost, what is it about cult dynamics that motivated you to build an entire career around this? Well, it started when my grandmother was living in a nursing home in Phoenix, Arizona, and the paid professional staff was covertly infiltrated by a a fringe group that targeted the elderly. And when I found out that my grandmother had been confronted and that other residents uh, were being trolled by this group, uh, I became an activist, uh, an anti-cult activist and community organizer. And that began in 1982. And the rest is, uh, as they say, history. It just happened very spontaneously, serendipitously, and then uh, uh, now, uh, you know, it's many years later. Yeah, were you were you able to actually break that group up and get some resolution for your grandmother at that time? Well, there was an investigation done by the nursing home, and they found five staff were involved with the group, and they were fired. And then subsequently, uh, the community became concerned about this type of encroachment, in particular, uh, people uh, coming uninvited to hospitals, nursing homes, uh, proselytizing children without parental notification and consent, things like that. And um, I was the Jewish community representative uh, for the Jewish Federation of Greater Phoenix, and we work with many faiths. Uh, to come to some kind of ecumenical consensus on what would be ethical regarding uh, proselytizing recruitment and what would be unethical. And it, and I was really pleasantly surprised to find that we really could come to a consensus uh, about what we all felt was reasonable. Well, and I would I would think all faiths, believe that people shouldn't be subjected to that kind of control and and uh, the behaviors that are found in cults. But as you worked with law enforcement, you know that I come from a law enforcement background, investigated cults for much of my career. Uh, how has your um, association with law enforcement been over the years? Because in many cases, my experience has been, it's kind of an area that that just doesn't fit in the criminal code. And so law enforcement sometimes 
a, a little less apt to jump right in? Well, I've worked with an awful lot of law enforcement. I've worked with the FBI, the BATF. I've worked with Child Protective Services. Uh, and uh, I've worked with the Justice Department. Most recently, I testified against the cult leader, Keith Ranieri in Brooklyn, who is now sentenced to 120 years in prison. And I cooperated also in the prosecution of James Arthur Ray, a guru in um, that had a kind of training seminar in Sedona where three people died. He ended up going to uh, jail for, I think, about three years for negligent homicide. And, of course, I advised the BATF and the FBI during and before the Waco Davidian standoff. Uh, I actually deprogrammed two Waco Davidians, one before the standoff and one during the standoff. And I work with the BATF on their investigation because the, uh, the young man that I deprogrammed before the standoff, uh, his affidavit was used to gain a warrant for the arrest of David Koresh. The biggest cult that I dealt with, the Zion Society, was a few years before uh, Waco and and uh, the that group. The interesting thing to me was as we looked at the number of weapons that we recovered, the stockpiling of semi-automatic weapons, the hidden caches, uh, the the food storage that was hidden up, uh, the the end of world doomsday mindset, uh, it was incredibly difficult to to get inside and get anyone that's willing to talk uh, to law enforcement. And of course, we had to do it so covertly. Uh, what's your experience been as you have someone who's kind of at that fringe, like you said, with with uh, Waco, someone right as that thing was unfolding and you're trying to help them and deprogram them? Well, you know, it was really kind of scary because what happened was this young man, he had lived in the compound for over two years and David Koresh used him to run errands for him to collect money and help him in his uh, efforts to recruit people in California. And he, he came to the Los Angeles area. His family had been in touch with me. They were very worried about him. They, they felt, and they felt correctly so, that things were getting very ominous in, in Waco regarding David Koresh and that his, his control over people was escalating and his behavior was becoming more and more destructive and outrageous. So I did the intervention in Los Angeles. It took over a week to help this young man sort through what was happening to him. He uh, consented to meet with me voluntarily. and uh, But what we did not know was that a private investigator for the Church of Scientology also had me under surveillance. And he came to the house that... Um, that the family had in the LA area where the where where the brother was hosting the young man that that I was working with and they tried to dissuade him from continuing to meet with me and I found out later that they even put in a phone call to David Koresh telling him that uh, this culty programmer uh, was working with one of his most loyal people and uh, it was uh, it was just uh, very eerie, that whole thing. And it was one of many times that private investigators would be hired to stalk me, have me under surveillance, go go into my banking records, my phone records, go through my garbage. I mean, I've seen it all. 
and uh, I've been under the protection of the Justice Department uh, and Homeland Security because of threats made against my life over the years. I feel like I've uh, gone into a different room and walked back out, and I'm listening to the same kinds of conversation. Folks, I'm talking with Rick Allen Ross, the founder and executive director of the Colt Education Institute. We're talking about cults. And Rick, uh, as you were talking, it made me think back on even my own experience in the Zion Society. Uh, we, we continued to listen to prison phone conversations of the self-proclaimed prophet and his followers who went to prison after that investigation. And uh, much of their time was spent on uh, targeting me as the lead investigator because there were still a number of trials that we were preparing for and trying to discredit me. And so when you're saying this, I'm, I'm feeling this itch in the back of me that, that, um, how crazy this is. And I always wondered, I wonder what your thought is on this. I never worried as much about the leader of a cult that I was dealing with as I did the follower who was wanting to prove their allegiance. I think that's a very good point. Uh, I was once uh, confronted by a group of people that were affiliated with this one group in Phoenix, and it was uh, some of the followers that became very intense and confrontational, and one of them uh, threatened me physically. But at that point, uh, the this there was a demonstration being done by ex-members of this group, and they were demonstrating against uh, the group itself and th that was having a conference in downtown Phoenix. And there were cameras uh, for the news media in the area. And so I, I looked at this follower and I said to him, look, if you attack me, it's going to be on the six o'clock news. It's not going to make you a hero. Uh, but yes, they do want to prove something to their leaders. And they do feel that by assaulting you or attacking you, they, they can prove something. But I think ultimately, uh, the fact that you are being harassed and that you're being targeted by these groups proves to me that you're being effective. Because if they did not feel uh, that you were being effective and that you were getting somewhere, either in a criminal case or through your work exposing them publicly, they would not bother with you. Uh, so the fact that I've been sued five times by different groups that have been trying to get information taken down from uh, the website culteducation.com. And, and, and in one of those lawsuits, Keith Ranieri, who sued me for 14 years, uh, that case was just dismissed in federal court shortly before he was arrested in Mexico. And I, I have to say this uh, to those who are wondering, how could you possibly afford to go through 14 years of litigation? I would say pro bono legal help from caring and concerned lawyers. And I, I think people don't realize that there are so many good lawyers that are helping people through pro, through pro bono work. And uh, if it wasn't for that pro bono help that I received, I could not have stood against the groups that I did that sued me uh, multiple times. Rick, help our listeners understand what defines a cult. Well, I think of myself as a relative conservative on that point, and I think it's important to 
uh, have a, 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 a very uh, firm and concise definition because we don't want to call everything a destructive cult. Very few groups measure up to that uh, definition. And I would say there are three core characteristics that form the nucleus for a definition of a destructive cult. And they were first identified by psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton in the 80s in a paper that was published at Harvard University, Cult Formation. The first and, and most single salient characteristic of a destructive cult is an omnipresent leader uh, that is dictatorial, that uh, runs everything, uh, whatever he says is right is right. Whatever he says is wrong is wrong. Frequently very charismatic. And this leader becomes an object of worship for the group. Uh, he controls everything. Second, that the group uses a process lift and called thought reform or can be seen as coercive persuasion to gain undue influence over people, to break them down, make them over, engender dependency, and basically create a deployable pawn that can be used by the group. And then finally, if the group is to be considered a destructive cult, they're hurting people in some way. And this varies by degree from group to group. So you have groups like you've dealt with, these polygamous groups that are stockpiling weapons and being involved in criminal action and, and quite dangerous, potentially, to groups that are simply exploiting people for money, free labor, sexual favors, etc. Uh, not all groups are equally destructive uh, that are destructive cults. You know, as you as you talk about that, I mean, they, they all have this uh, omnipresent leader. I, I was making some quick notes here. And that the worship system is toward the leader. I think of uh, traditional mainstream religions, and it seems like it's more outward thinking about what do we do to bless and raise and help others. Uh, and then you get in these cults, and it's all about the leader. Yeah, I mean, you have someone like David Koresh, who who was the focus of the Waco Davidians, uh, Keith Ranieri, who was the focus of Nexium. Though Nexium was not a religious organization, but rather a supposedly self-help, self-improvement, seminar-selling, for-profit company, uh, which became a personality cult. And of course, Charles Manson with the Manson family, uh, who's perhaps the most notorious cult leader of modern history. And Jim Jones, who led the People's Temple that ended in tragedy in 1978 in mass suicide in Guyana. Uh, Jones really was an object of worship. People felt he had supernatural powers, that he, he received revelation. And they worshipped him. They talked about his Christ power, that he could uh, intervene in events, uh, that he could heal people. So uh, whatever, whenever you see a group that has uh, at its center this leader who can never be questioned, who is infallible, who can never be wrong, and who is not uh, accountable through any checks and balances, not elected, but rather self-proclaimed, self-chosen, and dictatorial and absolute in his or her power— that's a big red flag, and you're probably dealing with a destructive cult. When you look at perhaps trying to t 
take down a cult or at least expose it? Is it the leader that you would focus on or the ideology or would you be more successful just dealing with the individual member? I, I think it's all about behavior. It's not about what the group believes. It's about how the group behaves. Are they hurting people? How are they hurting people? Is it criminal? Is it uh, subject to a civil lawsuit? Are there children involved? Are they, are they being compromised? Is there medical neglect? Is there extreme corporal punishment? So if you're looking at a group, you're scrutinizing it, and you're thinking in terms of uh, this group is very destructive and, and their destructive behavior needs to be addressed, you take it on the basis of what crimes have they committed uh, on a on a point by point uh, case by case basis. So you'll have people stepping forward, uh, young people who have, have who have been hurt, families that have been devastated, and as they make their claims, uh, the group is accountable because in the United States, uh, you have the right to believe whatever you want. But you don't have the right to do whatever you wish in the name of those beliefs. So we have polygamous groups uh, in the U.S., as you know, and you've studied them extensively. And uh, Warren Jeffs, for example, the leader of the FLDS, uh, the so-called fundamentalist polygamists, he is in prison running his group uh, from Texas. And uh, he is in prison because he's a pedophile. He raped children. And uh, he was involved in criminal activities and a criminal conspiracy. And so that is how these leaders go down, not because they're benign, uh, because they're not doing anything wrong, but rather because they have committed criminal offenses. So in, in my view, if a group is really strange and they have a charismatic leader and they have a certain mindset that they promote through their process of training or indoctrination, and they do no harm, they don't hurt anyone, then uh, really we shouldn't be looking at that group because they're not harm harming anyone, and therefore they're not subject to scrutiny. You know, this is, this is interesting to me because uh, when I completed the Zion Society case and I went to the state to look into – uh, polygamy allegations and, and child sex abuse in those organizations. One of the things that we were slated with, this was the early uh, 90s, was during this kind of satanic panic era when there were allegations coming forward, allegations even of false memory and other things. And um, there was so much emphasis on satanic crime, on ritual crime being satanic in nature that um, it, it became really so much noise that we we trained police officers all around the Western United States to quit thinking about this from a ritual crime standpoint, but just look for the core things that we're good at, understanding child sex abuse and how to investigate that and prosecute that, and then use ritualism, ritual crimes, or or this feeling of ritualism as an aggravating factor during the sentencing phase. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, in my experience, and I lived through that satanic panic era in the 1980s, it just turned out to be so much smoke and mirrors, anecdotal stories, no objective evidence. Uh, the FBI did a full investigation. They found nothing. 
Uh, there were local police departments, government agencies that looked into it based on the stories they'd heard. But that's what they were. They were stories. You know, where were the human remains? Where was the forensic evidence to substantiate these claims of satanic ritual abuse? Uh, my, my experience, I didn't see them. Now, with Warren Jeffs, uh, he ritually abused children in the temple uh, in the Yearning for Zion Ranch in Texas. And that's a matter of fact established by audio tape and uh, direct uh, evidence. So I think you have to follow the evidence. If the evidence substantiates the claim, then there could be a criminal prosecution. But if all people have is anecdotal stories and they have no no objective evidence, I, I think we have to move on because there are many, many uh, destructive cults and some of them are quite pernicious and they're, they are hurting people. And we need to focus our energies, our resources, our attention on those groups, not not urban myths. <laughs> you know, it, it makes me think back. I, I remember commenting that as an investigator, you could only dig up so many parking lots and not find a body during that period when there were all these yeah. allegations that you you figure out that there's got to be uh, other evidence to support it. You know, you, you're talking about uh, destructive cults and the fact that they hurt people. It's really uh, pretty easy to to categorize hurting children. Um, but when I think about hurting people too, I think about uh, people that I've uh, interviewed who have given all of their riches to a, a cult leader, their properties. And then the moment they fall in disfavor, they're thrown out on their ear and they have nothing to walk away with. Is that part of this idea of you're hurting people? Well, absolutely. They, there are groups that, that basically clean people out financially. I, I can't begin to tell you over the years that I dealt with Keith Ranieri how many people he financially broke uh, until they had nothing. And uh, it was very sad. And there are other groups that, you know, just siphon off money. For example, the Church of Scientology. If you get involved in that, you're talking about a lot of money that uh, get ready for a big sucking sound at your bank because your money is going to be moving and you're going to find that in order to uh, continue in the coursework and the auditing and everything that's involved in Scientology, it can be very expensive. But, you know, Mike, it's the personal devastation that frequently happens that is so sad. I mean, people become estranged from their family. For example, uh, you the family uh, asks, asks critical questions about their involvement in a group, and the group says, cut them off. Uh, don't talk to them anymore. Uh, shun them. And so families become estranged. Uh, parents become estranged from their children, children from parents who become involved in some groups. And then the psychological and emotional damage done to people. Uh, the fact that they may have uh, deferred their education. They may have changed their career plans to suit what the cult leader or the people in the group advised them to do. And once they've gone down that road, they can't go back and change it. And so people who have spent, many of them, many years in destructive cults, when they leave, find that their life has been changed 
it's been altered. And so many opportunities that they might have had, those are gone. And, and they may have family members who have died that they cannot have closure with over the pain and suffering that the family's gone through. So recovery can be very difficult. And uh, the longer you're in, the harder it can be. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking how uh, devilishly brilliant it is to isolate people and to um, extract them from the safety nets. And if they do even want to leave, this fear of where would I go? Yeah. Well, well, the group tells you, the group tells you, you have nowhere to go. Your family doesn't understand you. Only we understand you. We are your family. We are everything for you. Uh, for example, Mike, you know this, that in these polygamous groups, they tell the young girls as they're growing up, if you don't stay with our community, if you don't marry who we tell you to marry, you will be cast into outer darkness for eternity. You will be separated from everyone and everything. You will not know God. You will have nothingness. And for eternity, you will be suspended alone in darkness. And so these young people are terrorized by these stories that they're told by the group. And so when people say to me, you know, Rick, uh, look, you know, this woman was 18. She was 19 when she became the fifth wife of this polygamist in this group, you know, the Allred community, the Kingston clan, the FLDS or whatever. And it was her choice. It's consensual. I would say not really. If you are a young person who has been raised in a polygamous community, and Mike, you, you, you know these folks, and you've probably talked to so many of them, and, and they're conditioned. They don't feel they have a choice. Uh, be, based on their, their, their history and their indoctrination in the group, they feel that the only choice they have is obedience. And I, I think that's a shame because so many of these women are abused and and they 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 really are constrained in these groups. It's very sad. Um, we've kind of stepped into this idea of mind control or thought reform. Um, before we talk about how you somehow reverse all of that, what are the primary ways in which these destructive cults change our way of thinking? Well, they isolate us. They encourage us to become socially isolated within the group where the only people we really have a meaningful uh, relationship with are other group members. And so there's this constant reinforcement. And we all rely on uh, the context of our socialization to know what is real, what is not real. And in this kind of bubble environment that is created by the group, they can distort uh, what your perception of reality is by controlling everything around you, by controlling information, what you read, who you converse with. If everything that goes into the mind can be controlled by a group, they can begin to influence and manipulate the mind itself. So I think all of us should recognize that we're all susceptible to persuasion techniques. If we weren't, there would be no advertising no political ads, no celebrity endorsements. People would say, I don't care if Michael Jordan 
likes those shoes. Doesn't mean anything to me. And so, of course, Michael Jordan, who's a very wealthy man from celebrity endorsement uh, income, uh, he would have to say, look, you know, I realize the influence I have. And of course, now in social media, we actually have a category of people called influencers who hawk products and have large followings on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, on Facebook. And then they market it and leverage it and make money from it. So all of this would not be possible if human beings were not susceptible to influence. And so what I would ask uh, the audience that's listening or watching now to think about is imagine if you're a cult leader and you take all those techniques, you distill them, you make them even more potent. And then you focus them like a laser on a group of people that you have isolated and cut off from any outside frame of reference, from any accurate feedback other than what you orchestrate. How then can you control their thinking, their emotions, everything? So that's the key to understanding uh, what has been called cult brainwashing, is just understanding the principles of influence and and these principles can be used for good or they can be used for bad. For example, we respect authority. If a police officer comes to my door and he's in his uniform and he asks me questions, I'm going to be very cooperative. I'm going to feel this is a person who has authority. If somebody comes to my door dressed in uh, cut-off jeans and, and a tank top and they haven't shaved in a week, I'm going to think this person has no authority. I'm, I'm not going to respond to them well. So the perception of authority is one of the principles of influence. And so we have cult leaders who manipulate the scriptures, who say they speak for God or some higher power, because they recognize the power of speaking from authority. And that's just one example. There's an excellent book influence written by uh, Robert Cialdini, who, who taught uh, social psychology at Arizona State University. And there are six principles of influence. Authority is one of them. There are others like scarcity, uh, the rule of, of reciprocation. You know, if someone you perceive that you have been done a favor, you wish to reciprocate. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. And so people can use these principles in a good way, or they can use them in a bad way. And then the book by Robert J. Lifton, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, uh, lays out eight criteria to recognize the thought reform program. And the principal foundational one is milieu control or control of the environment, creating that little bubble that is under the control of the leader. So, Rick, I'm, I'm now a loved one of someone who is in a cult and I want to try to help get them out. I guess I have two questions. One, I think I know the answer to is, can I just simply get someone out of a cult or what do I do when they finally suggest that they'd like to talk about some exit strategies? Well, that would be wonderful. I mean, many of the families that call me would, would, you know, they would they would be absolutely thrilled if uh, their family member said, I'm thinking of leaving this group. 
And of course, the number one thing is to be a good listener, to, to listen to that person who's involved in a group, to never shame them. Don't make them feel that they have to be humiliated to leave. Let them know that they will be loved, that they, that they are cherished, and that if they leave the group, you're there for them. You've got their back. And uh, make them feel that leaving is going to be as reasonable and easy as possible. And that, you, that you're certainly not going to create any impediments for them through guilt or shame. And, but if, if, they're, if they're totally in the group and they're a true believer and they're not exhibiting any doubts or, or, or willingness to reconsider their involvement, don't judge them. Don't confront them and say, oh, you're in a cult, you're brainwashed, because that will just get their back up. And moreover, they will go back to someone in the group and say, you know, my dad or my mom or my brother said this to me. What do you think? I mean, you should assume that whatever you say to them is going to be repeated to their handlers in the group and they're going to be coached. So you don't want to assault them with that kind of verbiage because it will end up boomeranging back on you in uh, reduced communication, reduced access. So what you want to do is be very loving, very supportive, find common ground, talk to them about things other than the group, its beliefs. Uh, don't be critical. Be, be affirming as far as they're concerned. I'm not advocating lying to them and saying, oh, I think your group is great and everything the group is doing is great. But uh, do not argue with them. Avoid the group as a subject of conversation. Find other things to talk about. And what you should do yourself is do some research. There are books out there like the ones that I've mentioned. My book, Cults Inside Out. Uh, Cialdini's book, Influence, Lifton, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. There are many books that you can read to help you understand how cults operate, the kind of manipulation that they use so that you're tuned in and you're, you know what to watch for and how to respond. You, you know, as you were talking, I, it made me think of dealing as a police officer in cases where there were child abuse or, or neglect cases in uh, child care situations. And it, it was more difficult <clears throat> to get the mother who was taking her child to those centers <clears throat> to accept that abuse was happening. Uh, it, almost more difficult to get information from the mother because they had this sense of I've, I've, uh, taken my child there. I've put my child at risk. And I think of the cult member who thinks, I don't want to have to admit I made a poor decision. You know, what's interesting to me, Mike, are all these young people, these kids who were born in cults, raised in cults, and they don't know any other life. And when they do leave, and I've talked to so many of them, uh, for example, uh, victims of the children of God, which is a particularly horrible group founded by Moses David Berg that promoted the idea that children should begin having sex at the age of four. And Berg uh, raped his granddaughter, raped his daughter, and, and basically he was a pedophile. 
and when these young people leave Children of God, and I've talked to many of them and other children that leave destructive cults, they have this ambivalent feeling about their parents. On one hand, they, they think, I love my mom, I love my dad, but on the other hand, I hate them because they brought me into this group. And what I try to help them realize and unpack is your parents were also victims. Uh, they were uh, under the influence of the group. They were manipulated by the leader. They would never have done the things they did fr free to honestly act on their own, independently, not under the influence of the group. And so for these kids, their recovery process can be very, very difficult. And some of them just don't make it, like the actor River Phoenix. I don't know if you remember him, but he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And uh, he had a brilliant career, and he died at the age of, I think, 26 from a drug overdose. And that's how many people that left the same group that River Phoenix was in, the Children of God, that's how they ended their lives. They were self-medicating. They were trying to take drugs as a way of numbing the pain that they had from their memories of the group. So, you know, I've worked with a lot of children coming out of cults uh, in Ohio. There was one particular group uh, where 21 children were removed by Child Protective Services, and I work with them. And I think uh, a lot of times we forget the pain of these children. And of course, in the polygamous groups like that you have worked with, you see that pain. You see these kids who are growing up in a group that they never chose and that they become victims of. Rick, it reminds me of one of the victims from uh, the Zion Society case that I handled, who's now in her 40s. And she said, I spent most of my life being told what to think. And it wasn't until she went to college in her 30s that she said, I finally figured out how to think. Yeah. And you know, Mike, a lot of groups, they, they block their people from having a college education. They don't want their members to go to college. In fact, they homeschool their, their, their kids. And this is all part of their effort to control the environment, to control information and to manipulate people. And, and so uh, what many of these groups find is that if, if our children go to college, they end up dropping away from the group because they learn to critically think and analyze information in college. Uh, and they're exposed to a wider world of experience. And they realize, wait a minute, that group that I was in, it wasn't really the way that I thought it was or the way I was told it was. And, uh, and of course, the children are, they don't have the emotional equity that an adult has that has joined the group, which, which you alluded to, Mike, which is if I'm a parent and I brought my children into this group and they were treated in a certain way that really bothers me and, um, and, and I'm responsible for that. You as a parent have a reason to deny that the group is destructive. Because if you accept that the group is destructive, then you begin to feel the guilt of bringing your family in. And, you know, this is what we call a cognitive dissonance. That is, when people are confronted with facts that directly contradict their beliefs, 
how do they navigate that? How do they deal with that? And so what the group does is the group puts a spin on it. Uh, Warren Jeffs is in prison as the leader of the polygamous group FLDS. And the group says, because he's a martyr, he's innocent, he's holy, he's suffering for all of us. We should praise God that he's there like a, a sacrificial lamb. And so the group has a way of resolving the dissonance that is between the facts that that uh, that Warren Jeffs is a pedophile and he was arrested for sexual crimes against minor children and the belief of the group, which is that he is a great leader, that God has ordained him to lead us. And so the group creates a spin and people accept that spin. And, and especially people who feel that they have great equity in the group, that they've sacrificed greatly for the group. For example, there are Waco Davidians that survived the fire, like, uh, for example, Clive Doyle, who I write about in my book as an example of cognitive dissonance. He lost his family, he lost his daughter, his grandchild in that fire in, in Waco. And he recognized, I think, that the prophecies that David Koresh uh, gave the group did not come true. At the end, when he died, the world did not end. The world was not judged. It wasn't the, 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 the eschatological termination of the world. It was just uh, another day, a tragic day, and life went on. But for Clive Doyle, he has to, in his mind, rationalize that. Because otherwise, he would have to confront the reality that David Koresh was a con man, that his real name, you know, was Vernon Howell, and that he wasn't supernatural, and that Clive Doyle would then have to say, my, my loved ones died for nothing. Rick, I, I wish we had more time. Can, can you tell me a little bit about the Cold Education Institute? What... I go to your your records often to look, especially in the archives, but kind of walk people through visually uh, what what they can expect to find on the website. And, and again, we're going to encourage everyone to go to coldeducation.com and learn more. Well, coldeducation.com was launched in 1996. It's an, a database that is constantly growing with thousands and thousands of, of reports and documents uh, for example, court documents regarding Nexium, regarding other groups. It's a historical archive. So you can go in there, use the search feature, you can look through the archives, and you can find information about hundreds and hundreds of groups. Uh, probably the largest or one of the largest archives about Scientology. And the first archive with information about Nexium online. Uh, there's also a message board where ex-members and concerned families post. There, It's been up for over a decade, and there are over 150,000 entries there. There's a book section where there's a kind of virtual library with all types of books uh, divided into categories linked to Amazon.com so people can get that book. Um, your book will soon be there, Mike, and, and people will be able to click and and go to order it and and you know 
and they'll they'll have that immediate access. So it's a virtual library. And there's also a link section with links to many other resources online. So it's a kind of uh, collection of resources where people can really address whatever issues they may have, whether they're researching the history of a particular group, or they're looking for articles about uh, cult indoctrination and manipulation, or articles about people recovering from cults. Uh, so in that sense, it's a, it's a very, uh, you know, constantly changing and evolving site. Uh, I also daily will have people following me on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, because I will share their breaking news stories uh, about groups of concern. And so there are many ways that people can engage online. And this gives uh, people an opportunity to learn more about a group before becoming more deeply involved. And having said that, I have to point out that all of the groups that we're talking about, many of them, are recruiting online. So the the internet became a kind of two-edged sword. On one side, we can research, we can find information about groups and make a more informed decision about whether we want to get more involved with that group based on what we find. On the other hand, there are groups using YouTube, uh, Twitter, all the social media to recruit and sustain members. And they're using PayPal to extract money from them. In fact, now a group can exist online and a leader can exploit people without ever even meeting them physically. Uh, that's an eerie thing. And it's particularly uh, spooky when you think of children who can be online in their bedroom, on their phone, reading cult indoctrinational material or watching cult videos on YouTube. I mean, I have been approached by families and they will say, uh, my loved one uh, never really left the house, but was recruited and indoctrinated by a cult while working at home or just in their bedroom, in their study. And uh, that's the world we live in. You know, it's it's amazing because there's no difference in the radicalization of a terrorist and the radicalization toward these different thought processes. And the, and the Internet does give a whole bunch of wacky people with the same mindset a place to get validated. And that's frightening. Yeah, well, I think the lone wolf uh, kind of stereotype that we have of a shooter that goes and kills people in a, in a mass shooting at a mall or whatever. When, when we rewind that individual, we frequently find that they were affected by material that they read online and that that became the ignition point. Uh, they were like a pool of gasoline waiting to be lit up. And it was that online indoctrination that, that basically became the ignition point. And of course, ISIS uh, the terrorist group has recruited online. Al-Qaeda has recruited online. And we're finding hate groups going online, recruiting people, white supremacist groups, uh, all types of groups that are utilizing the Internet and social media to recruit. And uh, social media is beginning to police this a bit. I, I would like to see YouTube be much more aggressive than they are and other social media, 
because there are groups that are literally using the YouTube platform to fully indoctrinate people, and it's going to have a harmful effect on our society. Some of these groups are are potentially violent or outright violent, and this can can metastasize online, and it can create very serious repercussions for for all of us. It's it's a public concern. Rick, I know that your book is available online at Amazon and other book uh, retailers. Uh, I, I also I always just see it on your website, but t- tell folks just a little bit about Colts Inside Out, and uh, and how they can get it. Well, Cults Inside Out is available through Amazon.com. Uh, there's an Audible version, there's a Kindle version, and then there's the the printed version. Uh, the book is a compendium of information about cults, including a kind of modern history of destructive cults, beginning in the late 60s to the time of publication of the book, which was almost, well, December of 2014. So, so there's a lot of information there about contemporary groups that we call cults. It was the first book, for example, to include Nexium, uh, the cult led by Keith Raniere. So there are historical chapters about uh, large groups, small but deadly groups. There's also a chapter about family cults, which is something that we don't often read about, but they do exist and, and they, they have been, uh, you know, criminally prosecuted, the leaders of certain family cults, which I recount in the book. And then there's an entire chapter on defining a destructive cult and a chapter on so-called cult brainwashing, how that really works. There are more than 1,200 research footnotes in the book so that if people want to drill down and find more relevant information and do in you know, more in-depth research, they can. There's an 18-page bibliography. And then there are, there are chapters about cult intervention work, the history of cult intervention work, um, how you prepare to do an intervention, how you do an intervention, and then case vignettes from my actual work where I show how what you have read in the book uh, up directly applies in real time. And there's also a chapter on cult recovery and a chapter on coping strategies for families who are wondering, well, how do I deal with someone who's in a an extreme group? How do I talk with them? How do I respond to them? And so I think the book is a compendium that can be very helpful to people that are dealing with this type of situation. And also, for people who have left a group and they want to unpack their experience. And uh, they begin by understanding the history of these groups and they begin to realize that they're not alone and that many people have left such groups and and recovered and thrived. Yeah, make sure you pick up Colts Inside Out. Rick, I just got to ask, will you come back and let's explore some things further in the future? Sure, Mike. I, I would always be happy to. And I, I particularly appreciate your work with polygamist groups. And it's good to talk to somebody who realizes that that, that is out there. I don't think most people realize that there are more than 50,000 polygamists living in North America. Uh, including the United States and Canada, and that the group, the FLDS alone, is more than 10,000 members. 
And, and for those that, uh, don't know that, I think they really need to tune in and realize that that's part of American life. Yeah. I mean, all you got to do is, is drive down to that region. I just a few weeks ago, I uh, drove out and just wanted to drive through and just see what the old neighborhood looked like. And I made my way through Centennial Park and Colorado City and into Hilldale. And uh, while there is some positive things happening with the change of government and uh, the changes that the state has required, um, there's still a lot of, a lot of folks that clearly are uh, practicing that pl- lifestyle, which may be perfectly fine as long as children aren't being uh, compelled to do things. And, and that's always been my fear. Uh, Rick, I just want to thank you so much for taking time to educate us some more on cults. And uh, folks, I hope you'll go to culteducation.com and check out the Cult Education Institute. Uh, it, it will, I think, help you in understanding a lot of things. Rick, if somebody really needs professional help and they want to reach out and get help from you professionally. Is that possible? Oh, sure. There's contact information to email me uh, at culteducation.com or call me. So uh, they can get in touch with me. I take calls from families every day and I don't charge anything for people to consult me and uh and and to help them in, in whatever way I can by connecting them with resources that can that can be useful to them. Well that's great. I, I'm so excited and, and thank you for putting deceived on your website. We we actually are going to be making a donation to the Children's Justice Center, a brand new uh forensic examination building that was uh opened thirty years ago when the Zion Society cult was broken up. We actually took these children to the in the first month of the doors opening. I've always had a love for the center, and and in uh, in the name of all those kids that were rescued, and of course uh, from the proceeds of the book, we're thrilled to be able to help out the Justice Center, folks. Uh, please check out coldeducation.com. And thanks for visiting Profiling Evil Podcasts. If you like the podcast, consider subscribing to it on your favorite podcast platform. And as always, make sure you're checking us out at profilingevil.com. Rick, from me and all the Profiling Evil team and everybody who's been listening in, thanks so much again and have a great day. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is TruthFinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give TruthFinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing. But you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.